Okay, well, welcome everyone. <coughs> Can you hear me uh, at the back? Yes. I normally lecture in here and I don't like using that microphone. I just try to project my voice. Um, so, uh, you, you're very welcome to this uh, lecture on uh, Iran's nuclear program by David uh, Patrick Arakos. Um, uh, the lecture is hosted by the LSE Middle East Center and um, we are very grateful to them for hosting uh, and funding this event. Um, my name is Ronan Alvandi. I teach uh, history of modern Iran and the Persian Gulf uh, here at the LSE. Uh, I read, as some of you might have done, uh, an essay by David in the London Review of Books last year, and I was, uh, I was so struck by this essay because it was so different to... The narrative it presented was so different to everything else I'd seen or read about Iran's nuclear program, and I thought, well, we must bring David here and get him interacting with our students and our colleagues. So he very graciously agreed, uh, and here he is. Um, he is going to talk uh, for about 30 minutes, um, and then uh, we have plenty of time for Q&A. Uh, there will be copies of David's book for sale outside. Unfortunately, uh, the, the machine isn't working, so it's cash only. But here's your opportunity to have David uh, sign your copy. Um, to tell you a little bit about David, uh, he's, he's a writer, as I said, an essayist uh, and a journalist based here in London. Um, you've probably seen him on television or heard him on radio. He's a uh, uh, pretty high-demand speaker these days, so uh, uh, he, had a, he had a very interesting chat on BBC4 on Monday uh, at the start of the week, uh, which was very interesting. Um, and I really recommend the book to you very strongly. Uh, it, it is, I think, the best thing really out there on the market if you're interested in the historical context uh, and the background to the present problems uh, we find ourselves in. Um, the title of the book is Nuclear Iran... The Birth of an Atomic State. Uh, it's been very, very well reviewed in the newspapers. Uh, uh, it's been described as a welcome contribution to the field. Um, and it really is a thorough historical study, and, and, uh, and I hope you will take a look. Um, so without further ado, uh, let's get started. Could I just ask you, those of you sitting on the outside, try to move it a little bit, so as others come in, they have somewhere to sit. Otherwise, they'll be bumping your knees as time goes on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you for that introduction. Can you all hear me? Am I on the microphone? Well, can you hear me? Yeah. Fine. Um, great, thanks. Um, well, I'm going to start by saying you know, a couple of points frame this discussion. Uh, the first is I think that this is a, a subject, a serious subject. I mean, Iran's nuclear program, the crisis around Iran's nuclear program, is one of the biggest crises in international politics today. I mean, we are 10 years on from August 2002 when the crisis began, when Iranian opposition group, the NKO, revealed full details of a uranium enrichment plant at the Tans and a heavy water plant at Iraq, uh, which kicked everything off. Now, 10 years later, the P5 plus 1, that's the international community allied against Iran, Britain, France, Germany, Russia, China and the US, they managed to sanction Iran's oil exports, isolate the country from the uh, international banking system, and make it an international pariah. Iran, meanwhile, has managed to enrich uranium to around 20%, which is most of the effort required to enrich to weapons-grade levels, which is about 80% or above, though weapons manufacturers consider 93% ideal. It runs several thousand centrifuges at its Natanz plants, and it has a large stockpile of low-enriched uranium, from which it could conceivably manufacture a bomb. It's still full with difficulties. They have to throw out the inspectors. But we are at an impasse now, and nobody seems to be moving. And this is, this is the continuation of a fundamental problem, which is more than 30, that, that is more than 30 years after the coming of the Islamic Republic and 10 years into the nuclear crisis. The question of how to integrate Iran, a country of 70 million people, with one of the, and one of the largest reserves of oil and gas in the world, still remains. How do we integrate Iran into the international community? How can we do this? Because it's not happening, and it needs to happen. Now, I'm going to also start with a caveat. Now, this talk might be slightly different, to many you've heard on the subject. I'm not going to address the issue of whether Iran's building a bomb. 
or how close it is to one. And I won't discuss sanctions, centrifuges or enrichment, though we can certainly talk about this in the Q&A. Rather, what I'm going to discuss is the programme as a whole, by which I mean any nuclear weapons programme and the civil programme. And to try and show what the programme itself means and has meant to Iran over years why it has meant this, and crucially, how it has changed in meaning, and why it has changed in meaning. Only by understanding this, can I, I argue, can you understand the, the nuclear impasse we're in today? And I advance a very simple thesis, that the nuclear program offers an opportunity. It is a window into the enigma of modern Iran. The story of which, I believe, is in several, in several regards the story of Iran's efforts to engage with a specific view of the modern world as deeply hostile and to try and negotiate a place within it. Iran's nuclear program is merely probably the most ambitious attempt for it to do so. And I argue that the program's history, its story, is a kind of tabula rasa onto which modern Iran's evolution has been and continues to be written. Understand the nuclear program and you understand modern Iran. Understand modern Iran and you have the best chance of resolving the nuclear crisis. So the, the way I have done this, the way I've decided to do this with my book and right now, is to go back to its history, to go back to the founding origins of the nuclear program. Because the crisis itself that we face today all comes from Iranian history. And the roots of the program lie not in physics, but in that Iranian history. So to give you a very brief summation, I'm sure most of you are familiar with, Iran's modern experiences, Iran's experiences with the modern world haven't been... Well, positive, to say the least. Since the beginning of the 19th century, Iran has suffered the loss of territories, part of Azerbaijan in 1812, the division of its own country into spheres of influence by the British and Russians in 1907, and even the forced abdication of its rulers, that, moreover, were put there by foreigners in the first place, Reza Shah in 1941. Even without the trauma of sustained colonialism or a sustained occupation, this has been for foreign meddling has found has been endemic in Iran, and found an apotheosis, if you like, in the 1953 Anglo-American coup that overthrew the democratically elected Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh, uh, an, idea, um, an event that has lodged in the Iranian, Iranian consciousness ever since. All these experiences have created an underlying national narrative that Iran is a weak country that must do what it can to protect itself against stronger and more aggressive ones, to achieve, to achieve some kind of um, independence or autonomy, some kind of freedom of action within a Western-dominated world that is culturally alien and historically hostile. For many Iranians, the country's oil wealth, its geostrategic location, will always make it a target for others. How Iran deals with this, or is to deal with this, or more accurately, how different ruling elites have sought to deal with this, has driven the nuclear program, often in totally antithetical directions, for over 50 years. So, to begin at the beginning, briefly, nuclear power came to Iran in the 1950s under a bilateral agreement with the US during Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, the Shah of Iran's rule. I'm not going to dwell too much on the Shah's program here, but it makes a good counterpoint to the Islamic republics, which I'll discuss at greater length. But suffice it to say, nobody had a more visceral understanding of Iran's weakness in the face of foreigners than the Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. He only came to power after the British and Russians, quote-unquote, allowed him to come to power, after they more or less forced his father out of the country. You know, he was very, very aware of Iran's weakness and, and its dependence on superpowers. And nobody, as a result, wanted Iranian strength, autonomy, more than him. He wanted to restore Iran to its imperial greatness. And for him, a nuclear program, something that he wanted personally from the very beginning, was his means to do this, or one of his means to do this. Iran was a developing country, but as I said, a country ruled by someone who wanted to restore it to its former glory. For it to become, critically in his eyes, the equal of, its, of his Western role models. The Shah always looked to America, he looked to Britain, he looked to France, as, as, countries, to be model, as countries that Iran could be modelled on. That's how it would be developed. Now, nuclear programmes generally have a particular meaning to developing world countries. They are projects of great sophistication, and they can bring a lot of prestige and because of the technological uh, benefits that they bring. Uh, you know, increased national capability, nuclear power, electric grid, etc. They offer, in a sense, what I term a chance to plug, or what I term a prestige deficit, suffered by such countries often in relation to the West, something the Shah felt keenly. So 
the nuclear program for him was how, along with his lavish imperial posturing, his huge buying of armaments, uh, his grandiose parties that he threw, you know, the big anniversary of Iran, uh, it was a hyper-project by which he could show Iran's greatness. It was his man, his man to the moon, if you like. And it, above all, because to him nuclear technology was the ultimate in technology, it was seen as the ultimate conduit to modernization, to modernity itself. But what is very interesting is what modernization idiosyncratically meant to the Shah. For the Shah, it meant one thing above all else. Modernization meant westernization. It meant that Iran would become like like his role models, like the USA, like Britain and France. In a book he wrote, or ostensibly wrote, called Mission for My Country, he outlines the Pahlavi Mandate, his project, his plan for Iran, and he entitles one chapter, Westernization, Our Welcome Ordeal. And this actually translated practically onto the nuclear program. He sacrificed a lot of indigenous capability. He didn't try and build up an Iranian scientific base Hugely, he did to a certain degree, but very often what he did was he sought external help, and he sought external help from the West. And it was France and Germany that were building all of the nuclear facilities during his reign, as he sought essentially to bind Iran to the West through the forging of commercial ties. Now, it wasn't a very practical vision, his nuclear program. It was, they spent a huge amount of money on it, and it wasn't very practical. And in the end, as his reign crumbled and, he's, and he began to lose power, and popular disaffection grew, it became one more totem of his profligacy, one more symptom of, of an excess, one more symptom of excess, and it was one more, yet one more unpopular move that contributed to his eventual downfall. But you see, you notice how he used the nuclear program, what it meant to him, and how it was a means by which he could, how can I put this, he could overcome the sense of inferiority he felt and that many Iranians felt. Now, things changed, obviously, with, in the 1979 Islamic Revolution that overthrew him and brought the Ayatollah Khomeini to power. Westernization, to say the least, was no longer a goal. Crowds uh, marched through the streets during the revolution, denouncing the Shah as a Western lapdog, chanting, Ma Bar Amrikar, death to America. The 1953 coup, which was already iconic in the national consciousness, was used by the Liberal revolutionaries. It became a shorthand for the perfidious role of Western powers in Iran. Now, what this meant for the nuclear program, Iran's membership to the Western club, if you like, with all its facilities being built by uh, Germans and French, was that it was now an anathema. Khomeini saw the world as fundamentally iniquitous, enthralled to imperial powers, quote-unquote, and he was determined that Iran would be neither dependent on godless East or, as he put it, tyrannic, blasphemous West. So within months, almost all the nuclear projects were unilaterally cancelled. They did not want nuclear power in Iran. The nuclear, power, the nuclear program was, I quote, a cause of great dependence on imperialist countries. It was, to paraphrase Clausewitz, the continuation of colonialism by other means. It was a Trojan horse for Western powers to Iran. There are many, many statements that the revolutionaries made that the nuclear program was reliant on, quote, unquote, vicious foreign manpower, all these sorts of things. Iran, the new, the new <coughs> motif for Iran was self-sufficiency. And it was uh, something that was subsequently enshrined in the Islamic Republic's constitution. Now what is interesting is by rejecting the nuclear program, as you can see, the revolutionary government rejected an embodiment of Pahlavi, envision, uh, of Pahlavi ambition. But it, it, re- it rejected, if you like, a particular <coughs> form of state identity. But Iran being Iran, the Islamic Republic being chaotic as it always is, the situation was reversed about a year later. They decided that the sheer amount of money the Shah had spent on the programme, not to mention there must have been consideration of its possible military uses as war with Iraq had kicked off, uh, and actually as a, as a means of developing the country, though not westernising it, all this meant that uh, they decided that the programme should be restarted. This was in about 1980, sort of late 1980. But the Islamic Republic had problems. The disgraceful kidnapping of diplomats at the U.S. Embassy by a student group in Tehran, which we call the 1979-1980 hostage crisis, had alienated the world. Essentially, they held American diplomats hostage for 444 days in the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. This enraged the U.S. President Carter. He cut off all links with Iran. He pressured all his allies to do the same. And it was pretty much the worst time for Iran to be seeking to start restart its nuclear program. The US essentially started to do everything it could to stop Iran from getting nuclear technology. 
because it feared it was now an untrustworthy rogue state, it might use it for a bomb. Iran, in turn, you know, constantly railed against the great Satan. As far as the mullahs were concerned, despite this isolation being, I must say, largely self-inflicted, as far as the mullahs were concerned, this was just the continuation of the narrative. Iran was being victimised. Iran was alone. Iran was alone now fighting Iraq. It, uh, Iraq, that, moreover, would go on to use chemical weapons against Iran, while in Iran's eyes the world sat silently on. It was alone in its quest for nuclear power. The historical narrative had seemingly been confirmed by experience, and the lesson was clear. Iran can trust only Iran. Which meant something very, very interesting for the nuclear program. What was once an anathema now morphed into a patriotic duty. Senior regime officials, people like Ali Akbar, Rafsanjani, they now urged Iranian scientists that had fled abroad during the revolution to come back and serve their country at this time. Now, for the Shah, the nuclear program had been a symbol of an Iran that was Western and inclusive, plugged into the international community. But now it had become a symbol of an entirely different Iran, an Iran that was palpably non-Western and defiant. Its meaning had flipped almost 180 degrees, but the impulse behind it, as an overt expression of Iranian pride, of, Iran, of uh, Iranian strength, and, uh, which is a further manifestation of Iran's attempts to deal with the modern world, was exactly the same. The Shah had sought greater freedom of action, greater independence, autonomy, whatever you want to call it, in the world, through his desire to embrace the international community, which essentially to him meant the leading Western powers, as a similar kind of state. His, 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 his method was imitation. He wanted to be like the U.S. The Islamic Republic, conversely, with its view of the world as essentially hostile, considered it as a means of forcing the West to, to accept its self-declared otherness, but on an equal footing. Like the soldiers fighting on the Iraqi battlefields, the nuclear program had become symbolic of a nation's refusal to be beaten. And it is this idea that has been at the centre of the programme ever since, and that dominates its nuclear diplomacy today. Sorry, um, uh, I just want my... Right, sorry, I realised that I should really have um, uh, slightly earlier. But um, <laughs> you've heard it all anyway, so it's fine. Uh, yeah, right, fine. So, fast-forwarding now to 2002-2003... Um, in about, about six, seven, eight months after uh, August 2002, when the MKO revealed full details, as I said, of those two sites in Iran to kick off the nuclear crisis, as it were. As, uh, in the months after that, there was a lot of toing and froing. The IAEA wanted to inspect the plants. The Iranians wouldn't, wouldn't let them in immediately. And we got to the situation in spring 2003, eight or so months after the big announcement. And the Iranians were scared. Uh, They'd fought a war of words with Tel Aviv and Washington for 20 years because they'd been accused of seeking nuclear weapons, which they'd always denied. And now it looked as if they were, you know, Tel Aviv and Washington were going to be proved right in front of a global audience, no less. Critically, the Bush administration had just made good on its threats of regime change against one member of the Axis of Evil, Iraq, and totally smashed it. This was before the disaster of the peace. This was when they actually fairly militarily, efficiently smashed Saddam. With Iran's dossier at the IEAA, where it could well go to the Security Council, the Iranians were scared that the same thing might happen to them, and America might invade Iran. The Europeans, the Americans, the IAEA, the UN, everyone wanted answers. So the Iranians had to formulate a position to do so quickly and ensure it was effective. And this is where they set out in detail all the principles that guide Iran's modern nuclear diplomacy, everything that we've seen over the last 10 years. And these principles are forged in Iranian history and Khomeini's worldview. Now, the man that was given the task of dealing with this, of, of heading up the nuclear fire, was a man called Hassan Rouhani, who I'm sure many of you have heard of. He was Secretary of Iran's Supreme National Security Council. Now, most immediately, he had to decide what to do. If they were to defend the program, the Iranians, as opposed to, say, scrapping it, which is what Libya would subsequently do, what exactly would they be defending? What did and does the nuclear program mean to Iran almost 60 years after nuclear power first came to the country? Now, political expediency was necessary for the Iranians, but Hassan Rouhani wrote to his, his president at the time, Mohammed Khatami, where he set out exactly what it meant. 
and it was clear that, that certain fundamental principles would guide were, were integral to the nuclear program. The first of which was the primary facie belief that the program was integral to Iran's security. It would not be abandoned. Now, as ever, policy was framed by Iranian perceptions of history, namely the overarching problem between Iran and the West. As Rouhani told Khatami, and you can see here the quote which I will read out, the authority of the Islamic regime, its national security, and the unification of all its territories have not at any given time during these past 27 years been supported or even recognized by the West in any realistic manner. The determination of this great nation to ensure its stability and to seek independence and justice has never and never will be welcomed by the West. At no stage after the victory of the Islamic Revolution has the relationship between Iran and the West become normalized. The Islamic Republic, so it believed, lived in a world where no one had accepted its very existence. In its eyes, its nuclear program was a symptom of this, targeted from its beginnings under the Islamic Republic uh, by the USA and Europe, who, as far as the revolution, well, not the revolutions of this stage, but as far as Rouhani was concerned, abrogated contracts to cheat Iran of technology and generally just picked on it in the best traditions of Western imperialism. What this meant, Rouhani then argued to Khatami, was that there was no other option for Iran but to produce nuclear technologies within its own borders. As he said, and I quote, the clash between the Islamic Republic of Iran and the Western world will never be resolved until Iran's ability in various political, economic, scientific and technological arenas reaches an equal comparable to that of the West and a just relationship between us and them becomes inevitable. The belief in Iran's need to face the world from a position of strength has driven Iranian nuclear policy ever since, and even before, in fact. The situation then, as they saw it, was dangerous, but that only made the need for strength more critical. And this meant that the achievement of the indigenous fuel cycle was absolutely of paramount importance. To compromise on this, on the ability of Iran to make nuclear technology within its own borders, would be almost to, to compromise on the regime's, regime's existence itself, which is self-evidently unacceptable. Even when Iran suspended uranium enrichment for two years between 2003 and 2005, efforts were made by Rouhani specifically to push on with all other nuclear activities. Facts would have to be created on the ground. Iran needed to force the West to accept it. And this was the only way it could be done. In 2005, when he signed off from his position as head of the nuclear file, he, 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 he once again wrote to Khatami, and he told him his nuclear policy had been vindicated. And I quote again, and for the final time, in the last six years, the valuable work of the National Atomic Energy Agency, as well as the genius and the efforts of the country's scientists, has gradually reached a level that has forced the world to believe in Iran's nuclear technology that derives existence from its people of indigenous nuclear technology sorry that derives its existence from its people and belongs to the people and because and because it is indigenous it can never be taken away it's a fundamental point in the way that they think now for the Shah the world really was a stage and its international institutions an opportunity for him to play upon it the Islamic Republic views the world as essentially hostile. And many hardliners still argue for a national security policy based on the most atavistic elements of Khomeini's worldview. And if the world was unfriendly in 1953, when Mossadegh was overthrown, they believe it is far worse now. The US, they argue, and this is where we get into the security idea of the nuclear program, wants to overthrow the regime. And since the first Gulf War in 1991 has had a huge military presence in the Middle East, has bases in Saudi Arabia and in the Gulf, uh, the Fifth Fleet, obviously, in the Persian Gulf, all with an easy striking distance. Uh, 2001's Operation Enduring Freedom saw huge numbers of US troops gathered on Iran's eastern border in Afghanistan. Saddam's overthrow two years later was good for Iran. It removed a pressing security concern. But it saw, also saw more US troops massed now on Iran's western border. With US forces also in the CIS republics, notably Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, Iran has been encircled by the USA on its own continent. A bitter joke, there's been a bitter joke in Tehran for a few years now that I heard the last time I was in Iran a few years back. It goes, there are two countries in the world that have only the USA as their neighbour. The other is Canada. <laughs> the Iranians are scared. 
and they want respect. They feel the world has not accorded them their due. As Iran's ambassador to the IAEA, Ali Asghar Sultanay, told me some years ago in Vienna, we are a nation with 5,000 years of history. The world should not speak to us like animals. The nuclear program is and has always been a symptom of these impulses. A civil nuclear program brings a developing country like Iran a prestige to which it is keenly sensitive. It is a shortcut to a much-desired modernity and to technological advancement. A nuclear bomb might give this country the security it craves. Precedent is important here. Following the 9-11 attacks on the US, the US invaded Afghanistan to destroy the Taliban, a regime that had harboured and supported al-Qaeda. But Pakistan had also harboured and supported al-Qaeda, was a long-standing sponsor of terrorism and a dictatorship with a dismal human rights record that had also, moreover, spawned the AQ Khan network. Despite all the help that Iran gave the US in Afghanistan, Iran was declared a member of the Axis of Evil, while Secretary of State Colin Powell described Pakistan as a major ally in the war on terror. Washington then went on, went on to smash Iraq that turned out not to have WMDs. And obviously, Gaddafi would then fall later on when he gave up his nuclear program. Many in Tehran have concluded that the White House and the world treats nuclear states differently. And it is these wider fears now that are, that are heart of the security element of the today's impasse. And this is the fundamental point that I keep making, which is that the nuclear program is not the cause, but the effect of a wider clash between Iran and the West. And it is this underlying relationship that must be addressed for any resolution to be found. I hope by going back through into the history and under, explaining the type of narratives that are at work here, that that has been made clear. As long as the P5 plus 1 continues to dance with Iran without actually tackling the problems inherent within this central relationship, and this is not entirely their own fault, you know, Iran is, is, is a hell of a negotiating partner. It will stall, it will brinkmanship, everything. But as long as these central issues aren't addressed, a lasting diplomatic solution is impossible. Sanctions may force Iran to compromise on uranium enrichment in the short term. They're under severe pressure, and I hope that a window of opportunity arises. But browbeating Iran into a temporary solution doesn't solve the overarching problem. Only by truly broadening out the scope of engagement can this be achieved. Engaging Iran on regional affairs, involving it in multilateral discussions and forums, and attempting above all to alleviate its fears and even its neuroses is the only way the relationship can be fixed. Now, Iran will have to give a lot as well. Um, Iran has not been an honest broker, and you know, the P5 plus Iran really has bent over backwards for Iran. I, I do believe this. But Iran is in a state now where it is at the nuclear threshold. It could conceivably make a nuclear bomb. Now, this would be very difficult, and I must say that they could only do this if they threw out the IEA inspectors, which so far they've shown absolutely no inclination of doing. And as the White House official I spoke to said, they wouldn't do it. If they threw out the inspectors with bomb the tans, they wouldn't be that stupid. But unless a diplomatic breakthrough is made, fairly soon, the world may one day have to deal with the fairly unpleasant prospect of a nuclear Iran or of an Iran that has become totally pariah. Thank you. Thank you so much, David. Um, I'm sure you have a lot of questions. Uh, please just keep your questions uh, short and to the point, preferably with a question mark at the end. Um, and if you could just introduce yourself with your name and your affiliation. Yes. Thank you. I'm a PhD student from SOAS. Um, you finish your, your lecture saying uh, the, the world will have to do with the unpleasantness of uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, what's What's the problem if it are having a nuclear weapon? I seriously don't understand. Yeah. Well, I believe that it will, I mean, I would believe it will cause an arms race in the Middle East. I'm against nuclear weapons on principle. Uh, I'd like there to be disarmament if it's all possible. But I'm against it on one level that any state getting nuclear weapons. So I'm against it on that principle. I'm also against the basis that I think it will cause a regional arms race. Saudi Arabia has already said that if Iran gets a bomb, it will buy one off the peg from Pakistan. Uh, it may force Egypt to consider it as the leading Arab country that might pride might force it to go for a bomb. I just think that a, a nuclear arms race in the Middle East would be a terrible thing and something to be avoided. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Yes, um, So I understand the conflict between Iran and the United States. Um, that's, that's going on Sorry, could you give your name? In oh, so I'm Ansel Hassan from uh, London School of Economics. Um, I'm curious about the position of Ahmadinejad. Had there been maybe had Mossadegh come into power, or uh, had there been a different leader, do you think things would have progressed differently? And I know there's there's tension between the two nations, but it seems like Ahmadinejad is a big problem for the United States. Or am I misreading it? Look, I think that Ahmadinejad hasn't helped, to say the very least. I think what we have to remember about Ahmadinejad is he doesn't run Iran. The supreme leader runs Iran. And I think this was a big, uh, a big problem with the suspension. In 2003, I'm sure you, you all know, in 2003, Iran agreed to suspend uranium enrichment. Now, it agreed when it was negotiating with Hassan Rouhani in Tehran. And Rouhani was very much trying to find a compromise. He, did, he didn't, he, there's a famous quote in his, his book where he says, it dawned on me that if we didn't come to a, a resolution, I'm talking about the negotiations in Tehran, that there were military implications. They were worried about the US. So he agreed to suspend, and as Iran saw it, the Europeans never offered anything of any substance. But what they failed to understand, it was always the supreme leader that was giving his blessing, his de facto West, anti-Western instincts, when nothing materialised, um, were confirmed in his eyes, and Iran has never suspended since. So I think to answer your questions, the supreme leader is always the one who's in control. I think if Mousavi had come, then perhaps there could have been more negotiations. I mean, he's been, he's been pretty bad after the dinner He's been very bad. But I will always say the caveat that ultimately it's the supreme leader that counts. I don't think, for example, that when Ahmadinejad came in, had he decided to suspend again, that the supreme leader would have allowed him to suspend again. But I do think that it would have been better for Iran's PR had he not come in and said all the stupid things that he said. And I think with a more amenable prime minister, things could have been improved, yes, especially Obama's outreach. But it does depend on the supreme leader finally. Yes, gentlemen there. Okay. Um, one Islamic country already has Pakistan, and um, that's the only Islamic country to have a nuclear weapon. How does that impact on how the Iranians and, uh, decide to have or have not nuclear weapons, and uh, would that uh, relate to some possible Islamic approach to this? I think the issue with Pakistan, actually, is, is, is the one I mentioned. I'm not sure if it's I mean, the fact that this is an Islamic country, I suppose Iran will take note of, but I think it's more the precedent value of it, that Iran, that Pakistan has these weapons uh, and was declared a major ally in the war on terror when it was a long-standing sponsor of terror. Uh, Iran thinks that, you know, the US and Western powers don't mess with countries that are nuclear states. I think that's the big lesson that the Iranians have learned from Pakistan, which is they've got a nuclear bomb and they, you know, they've done very well out of it. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. I'm Shahid Jamil. I'm a British Pakistani. I've grown up in Pakistan. I live in Britain. I live in Britain now. And uh, my, my, uh, my, my, I have two questions. One is, why didn't the U.S. make uh, seize the opportunity for the eight years when Khatami was president and was opening up to the West? So, and from that, I, I come to my second point which is that, that this uh, nuclear program in Iran is a red herring. It's a, it's, a, it's a signatory to the Non-Proliferation Treaty. It's the member of the IEA. <coughs> and if you really want to make the bomb, you don't have to be a member of these two organizations, which is what Israel did, and India did, and Pakistan did, and I'm sure. I don't know about that. <coughs> so, so this is something else. It's not about the nuclear program at all. It's because... It's a country, a sophisticated country, that's being ruled by the Mullahs. And, and you said in your talk that it's the, it's, the, it's the religious leader who makes all the decisions. I find that very difficult to believe. I've been to Iran on holiday, and I was amazed at the number of women who go around shopping. And you don't see that in Pakistan. Okay? And uh, I, I, I only saw two Mullahs outside a religious thing. They don't, the mosques are not full on Friday prayers. So what is this all about? Is some Western fixation about a mullah heading the state? Well, no, I, I mean, he is, he is the head of state, and he does make the final decisions. Now, whether or not that trans translates into mass religiosity amongst the population is a different story. Well, there is religiosity as well. 
with us. It's, I mean, it's been just getting more and more. I mean, yeah. I take your point. I've also been in Iran, and I you know I'm in half Iranian. I know exactly what you're talking about, and I think it's great. You know, I, went, I asked some Iranians, where do you go on holiday with all the sanctions? And they said, we go to Turkey. Mm. I said, how do you like Turkey? They said, very much, but we're very worried. I said, what are you worried about? So they're becoming very religious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say that I think it's very much a class thing as well. If you go into the rural areas of Iran, they're extremely religious. And I do think that the point is that the Supreme Leader, by, you know, he makes the political decisions. Why doesn't the West... Sorry, we're just going to try and take a few uh, questions. Yeah, gentleman at the back there, yeah. Uh, thanks. Uh, Victor Hagan is my name. The, um, can you speak a little bit about... Um, you know, what experience there is out there with other countries that developed uh, civil nuclear programs and, you know, maybe looked a little bit like they were going to develop some military capabilities and then didn't. You know, I mean, I've heard people talk about South Africa, yeah. Argentina, maybe even Japan. I mean, can you give us a little bit of an idea sure. about countries that, that have quite a lot of nuclear technology but didn't yeah. create a bomb and why yeah. they didn't or whatever? Well, South Africa is the classic example, is that it, it built a bomb and then it dismantled it, um, which was, I mean, that's largely to do with it wanting to reintegrate itself back into the international fold. I mean, this is one thing that the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty on Nuclear Weapons, has done, which is it enshrined a set of values uh, that, to, that meant that to proliferate meant that you were almost a rogue state. There were, as the gentleman said, one or two states that stayed out of it, and the one famous example of being in it is, of course, North Korea, which was in it, and then withdrew. And by doing that, it became the ultimate prior state. Japan has a very sophisticated nuclear program, but because of its particular experience with nuclear weapons, obviously being the victim uh, of nuclear strikes, it will not touch nuclear weapons. You know, it's actually illegal in Japanese law for, for um, them to ever have nuclear weapons. Argentina also had a fairly thriving nuclear program, uh, which sort of petered out somewhat just to, due to change of regime more than anything else. Yes, lady over there. I was just wondering, um, talking about non-proliferation, NPT, I said correctly, why they don't invite the countries who haven't registered? We know who they are, Pakistan, India, Israel, and North Korea, to register. And if they don't, then there should be sanctions against them. And another thing which should be done, I feel that if it's done, is if there is any country attacking, nuclear attack to another country, then it would be crime against humanity, and they should come to the court. United, yeah, um, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. I was on, responsible. Yeah. And I think when the countries realize that having nuclear bomb is useless and is expensive to keep, and it's dangerous, then nobody will touch it. Yeah, look, I, I think you made a lot of good points. I was on the radio just on Monday with someone saying that it should be enshrined in law that nuclear weapon is a crime against humanity, and I absolutely agree. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, uh, Dr. Yunus Rai from Malaysia, would you include in that category the Americans, the British, yes. sorry. And, and, and the French, and everybody sorry, else? Sorry, so I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, you just have to wait your turn. Yes, I'll leave you at the back there. That's enough, I don't want to upset you, but I want to say it's a very good question. Now, for a long time, the mullahs, Ahmadinejad actually, you talk about Ahmadinejad, the gentleman behind you, was able to employ what I term nuclear populism. He would say, you know, look at the Americans, they want to keep us down, they're saying we're not allowed nuclear technology, they're trying to keep an Islamic power down in the best traditions of Western imperialism. Look, I went to Iran and I was in Isfahan, and honestly, I'm not making this up. These children accosted us on the street. They, they didn't ask for sweets or anything. They wanted to know why they weren't allowed to have nuclear power. <laughs> I mean, that's foreign policy is national aspiration. So for years, I've watched videos, hilarious videos, of Iranian nuclear, adverse nuclear program, of this sort of music, this cooing music over in Elysian Fields backdrop there. Iran is a nation of very intelligent people as scientists lift up uranium like a goblet. But I think that that's wearing slightly thin now, to answer your question. You know, with the sanctions, with food inflation at 50%, the real plummeting, Iranians care more, less about enriching uranium than they do about jobs. And I think it's wearing very thin. And I think, especially since 2009, when the fraudulent elections fractured the political league even more than it already is, those that lost the power struggle, people like Rafsanjani, take any opportunity now to attack 
to attack Ahmadinejad, to attack the government, saying you are bringing down all these sanctions on our head for no reason because of your own stupidity. So I think it's changed a lot. I don't think they can use the nuclear program as a national rallying cry than they once did. Yes, gentlemen. Uh, I entirely agree with your sentiment that uh, it goes back to the Iranian prestige. I don't know whether anybody in the academic circle in the United States or Britain think about Iran history, Sarpas uh, and all that sort of going back to such a long time. The Western powers completely bonkers when they go into Iraq, Afghanistan, not knowing the language, religion, culture, music, anything of that sort. And yet they have not been advised by the academician that this is wrong, it's a stupid thing to do. I, I can't argue with that. I don't think anyone can hold up. You're assuming that they listen to us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we like that. Two short questions. First one Do you think there's a relation between the Iranian nuclear program and how the regime responds to it and the kind of domestic balance of power that we have within Iran? Like the power between the Revolutionary Guard and the reformists, the hardliners. So, do you think that the nuclear program gets co opted by domestic struggles? Number one. And number two, do you think that Iran's tactic of not being so straightforward with the nuclear program, meaning on the one hand being not so decisive, decisive about weaponization on the one hand, and being very ambiguous when it comes to uh, accommodating with the West, do you think that's actually a, a tactic on the Iranian regime to sort of be ambiguous about it? Yeah, I think I'll answer your second question first. Yes, I do. I think, you know, Iran has been, I mean, it hasn't violated the NPT per se, but it's been, you know, it's been violated safeguards agreements many, many times. And it's been caught out with documents relating to weaponization that it claimed it got by accident from the AQ Khan network. But I think that, yeah, it's part, part indecision and part tactic. Definitely brinkmanship is a very, very big part of this. Pushing forward, itching. The Israelis call it uh, crawl out. You know, you take the red line that exists and you turn it into a series of little thin, pin line, uh, thin, pin, thin pink lines. With the idea being that you push and push and push and push and push, hoping that no one will do anything, and usually they don't. So I think that's very much a part of Iranian strategy. And also there's a certain amount of disorganisation that's always there in chaos. So I think it's a bit of both. In terms of the domestic struggle, I think what is interesting is if you want to build a bomb, it's one thing to build a bomb, the second thing is who's going to look after it. And I think actually that since you've seen the triumph of the Revolutionary Guard since the 2009 elections, that you know, these people were let in actually, funnily enough, by Rafsanjani, who lost the power story. He let them into the economy in the 80s. It was him that did it. Um, I think that should Iran build a bomb, I think now that the Revolutionary Guard seems to be so in control, it would be entirely their project now. The double standards of Western policy, which is open, which anybody can see, really. Because if, you, if you're going to be even, then, you know, why recognize India's nuclear program, for example, and an agreement with it? Why not recognize, and you know, the U.S. General Assembly has just said to Israel, can you open up to inspection? And why can't Western powers be even handed and fair minded to come to some kind of diplomatic solution? Yeah. Look, again, I agree. I mean, what, the deal that Bush made with India really, I thought, was disastrous. Because exactly what you said, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of thumbing his nose at everyone that's in the NPT. Um, I mean, you know, why they can't be even-handed, I suppose, it's just, it's, just, it's just political, really. They're looking after their own interests. But, yeah, I agree. I mean, look, I mean one thing I do, I do have the caveat here when people say, why should Pakistan and India and Israel be allowed to have nuclear weapons and not Iran? Well, I do say that they never signed the NPT, Iran did. So Iran does have a legal commitment in the way that these other states don't. So I think there is double standards, but I also think there is a difference between those states and Iran. No, Catherine. So can you give us any insight into what you know, British politicians and US politicians are thinking what their next step for kind of getting through this stalemate with Iran is, or are they just going to keep going as they're going and hope that Iran will just crumble under Western pressure, or are they trying to rework their strategy? It's a very good question, my master. <laughs> Naturally, it's a very good question. Um, if you look, I mean, Iran. I think there's a window of opportunity now, and I think there's. Um, it's generally recognised by Western politicians that there's a window of opportunity. Iran is suffering, and history shows that when it's weak, it will compromise. I, I refer you again to 2003 when it was scared of following Iraq and it suspended uranium enrichment. 
But I, I do wonder what the strategy is at the moment. If you, you know, the last three sets of negotiations in Istanbul, Baghdad, and Moscow, actually the P5 plus one offered very little to the Iranians, nothing that they could really sell to their people. So I wonder if things have, have switched slightly. I wonder if now it's not Iran's talking for time, but the um, but the P5 plus one. I wonder if they if they're calculating the pressure is mounting on Iran every single day, and the longer it prevaricates, the more it's going to suffer. And I wonder if their strategy now is to, is, to, is to make Iran come to the table through sanctions and try and come to a conclusion then. I would hope that they would offer something that they've offered, you know, something they offered before, a fuel swap, something that was agreed uh, with the Brazil and Turkey with Iran in 2010. I mean, they, they have, to be fair to the P5 plus one, but many, many good offers on the table, not so much recently, but in the past. And I would hope that we are in a window of opportunity where Iran can be forced to compromise. Do you think that maybe like post-2014 when... The West has less investment in Afghanistan and regions around Iran that that might offer a new. It's possible, but everyone I've spoken to in Britain and America is extremely concerned about Iran. It really is a top priority at the moment. There's also, if I can chime in, I was talking to someone from the FCO the other day about this. There's a certain sense of fatigue by these people who deal with Iran. um, They all sort of, when they first come into the job, are very optimistic and have a lot of bright ideas. But after about two or three rounds of negotiations with the Iranians, they turn into hawkish... (laughs) (laughs) No, quite honestly, they turn into this kind of hawkish presence. And then it's very difficult to convince them to take any kind of risk in putting forward a proposal that is going to be politically controversial in their own country or that might involve any kind of political risk for the foreign secretary or the prime minister or something like that. So it's a real problem, you know. It's very, very difficult. Anyway, how are you? Um, so you said under under sorry, under Pan Iran, uh, it's about a prestige deficit, and under the Islamic Republic, it's about recognition. Well, I think it's the same thing, but they just manage it, the way they decided to to, to plug it is different. It is, yeah. and given the fact that Iran has been a global power for yeah. the last fifty of years. Course, yeah. Do you think that a solution in that Iran is broken economically? or, as you suggested, involving them in regional decisions would satisfy the Iranian regime in convincing it that it is a global power? Because if that's what you're saying it is, how do you go about having a satisfied Iran without a nuclear bomb? Have we gone too far now? Yeah. No, I mean, I think Iran sees itself as a global power. It's certainly a regional power. And I think the more that you can integrate it into the international system, the better it will be. As as to what will satisfy Iran, who, who really knows? I mean, we can't obviously completely pander to its every whim, but I think Iran, Iran wants more engagement, not less. It ain't North Korea. This, you know, isolation, it feels, it, it, it is affronted by it. It feels it very keenly. When you speak to Iranians, they always go on about the history and they, they want more engagement, which is half the problem sometimes for some of the other countries in the region. But I do believe, probably, the more you integrate it in, the, the better it will become. Yes, Iran is like that. My name is Eric Bowers, and I'm uh, a publisher. Uh, do you, you've spoken very eloquently. Sounds like a very good book, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have a vested interest. <laughs> uh, you've spoken very eloquently about the, uh, the historical dimensions and the Iranian awareness of their own history, etc., etc., etc. Do you have any sense in talking to people in the West that there is an understanding here of the psychological and cultural dimensions that actually feed Iranian attitudes? Or is it always, like we've just heard, that after two or three negotiating sessions, there's a lot of eye-rolling and boredom about endlessly hearing about Iranian history and, for God's sakes, why did they get over it? Um, How much cultural awareness is there about ways to approach this problem? I think it's there. I mean, I've spoken to quite a few people in the FCO and they were in Iran and they spoke Persian and they understood it. But at the same time, I think the frustration you talked about was very much there as well. It does depend. I mean, when I was in, when I spoke to you in the White House and State Department, it, it varied really. But amongst the British and French I spoke to, I was generally quite impressed by how much they knew about Iran especially the language and how much they try to understand about it. But I think that fatigue is also a very good point. Then there comes a point where 
what I did hear a lot was that the Iranians were using these things as convenient excuses in negotiations and didn't want to negotiate and were falling back almost by rote upon these tropes purely for the sake of stealing the time. So there was cynicism about them, shall we say, an awareness of their existence, but cynicism of the way they were employed, I'd say. Yes, sir. Could I ask about this um, window of opportunity people keep referring to? Um, Because it seems to me the likelihood is that this window of opportunity won't be seized. I think that's the most likely to happen. Unless the state of the economy is so poor that the regime has to accommodate itself. In that case, what is the scenario? It seems to me there's two or three. One is that the the course of the nuclear program is sort of relentless. Maybe enrichment will go above 20%, or there'll be so many centrifuges they can weaponize relatively quickly. That's a possibility. Um, The other possibility, or likelihood, is that either the United States or Israel, which hasn't been mentioned very much, will preempt the whole thing and act in some way. That, those seem to be the much more likely opportun- uh, scenarios than any so-called window of opportunity being seized. Look, I understand um, your, your um, caution. Uh, I really do. I mean, I do think we are in a window of opportunity because Iran is really suffering. Whether or not it seized is a very good question, and one is always a fool to try and predict what's going to happen on the Iranian nuclear crisis. In terms of a military strike by Israel, I think it would be by Israel. I don't think the US would do it. I just don't believe that practically they can do it. Um, I think if they could, they would have done it by now. Uh, and you saw even at the last UN address, Netanyahu gave himself another year. Because it's always, this summer has to be done by the Israelis. This summer, this summer. And then he gave himself another year. I mean, if you look at what's coming out of Israel, even amongst the military establishment, there, you've got something like three former heads of Mossad saying it's a stupid idea to attack Iran. I'm still not convinced that that's going to happen. <coughs> If there is no, if there, if, if nothing is grasped, and I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that Iron might agree to ship abroad its loan, a certain part of its stockpile of loan rich uranium in response, in return for a corresponding amount of nuclear fuel. I think things will continue much as on as they are. I mean, I did make the point in my speech, and I will reiterate it. To say Iran has enough loan rich uranium for X bombs is true but misleading, because they can't enrich it to high enrich uranium without throwing out the inspectors. And they won't do that, I don't think. And if they did, that's when the US would get involved. And I think Iran knows that. So I think we'll just very much continue on with this stalemate. Sorry, just a supplementary. If that's when the US gets involved, in what way would the US get involved? If they threw out the inspectors, yes. well, I heard they bombed the tans. Right. So that is American military involved. Sure, yeah, if they did that, but I don't think they'll do that. Iran will never throw out the inspectors. It will never leave the NPT, unless it's attacked. If it's attacked, then it, then it will use an excuse, I suspect, to leave the NPT and go for it. But I don't think we'll ever leave the NPT. General Harry, you have not mentioned Saudi Arabia at all and the this uh, uh, huge sectarian conflict between uh, uh, that the Sunni radicals have launched against Shias all over the Muslim world, in Pakistan, Afghanistan, it's going on in Iraq, everyday bomb, suicide bombings. And in Syria, we are seeing it. What is your view that even if by some miracle the regime in Iran suspended and met all the conditions of the Americans and the Western countries, that this Sunni monolith that has become mobilized against Shiaism and they see Iran as the totem uh, holding this Shiaism in the Arab lands itself. Mm. What role do you think is going to play in the matter of war and peace in this region? Sorry, I mean, I think that the Sunni Shia uh, sectarian conflict that you're currently seeing sort of building in the Middle East is separate to the nuclear program, in as much as if, if, as you said, Iran compromised on everything, I don't think it would make any difference to the sectarian conflict at all, whatsoever. I think it's, you know, 
I don't think that Iran is being uh, attacked, quote-unquote, over its nuclear program because of this Sunni-Shia conflict. I think that, that it's separate, to be honest. True. Yeah. Do you think the conflict in Syria will have any effect? I mean, if the, uh, you know, the regime is replaced there, do you think that might deter Iran? I mean, hey, look, uh, what's happening in Syria is bad for Iran, right? It's lost an ally. Who knows what's going to replace or who's going to replace Assad, but, you know, the destabilization of Syria is very bad in Iran. I, I mean, thus far, I don't think it's affected its nuclear policy. But um, it's, hey, it's bad news for Iran. It's not a good time for Iran in the region at the moment. It's not a good time for Iran generally, economically as well. I mean, too many of its very, very, I mean, you know, Gaddafi fell, Assad fell. Um, so Iran's very, very isolated. Uh, but, you know, the thing with the Iranians is they're very good at hunkering down and suffering. This is what worries me, you know. They eight years during the Iran-Iraq war. I mean, you know, people were begging Khomeini to, to make peace. But he wouldn't do it for years. The Iranians are very good at knuckling down and, you know, putting their nose to the grindstone to manage some metaphors and just pushing on with it. Gentlemen, there. Yeah, Tom from the USMC. In the research, did you get an idea of how much of a role the concept of Takiya played in the various statements by Ayatollah saying it's against uh, Islam, it's against uh, Iranian uh, belief, the Persian specific Persian belief? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've looked into this slightly, but I mean, it's not Takiyah so much as just the idea being that Iran is just not being, he has been duplicitous. You know, I mean, this much is, 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 is apparent. Whether it's from Takiyah or, you know, that he's uh, theologically allowed to do so, I, I generally tend to think of it as just another nation state. You know, I mean, claiming it has no interest in nuclear weapons is obviously nonsense. You look at the documents that have been found in its possession, all these sorts of things. And it may well be that Takiyah comes in and allows even uh, fatwas that are made to be overruled for the sake of expediency. But Iran certainly has, has, has not been entirely truthful about its nuclear program. That much is clear. Yes, how is it? Do you think it's too far-fetched, given how far Iran has suffered economically, to play the get-out-of-jail card by pushing for nuclear disarmament? in the wider region that it's in at the moment. I mean, you think what you think to try and resolve we should push for nuclear disarmament? Possibly because then it satisfies itself in as a global player it's put its sure. to something quite right. historic and it's Yeah, no, no, hey, look on. I think that would be great, but I don't think it will ever happen. So I think the problem will remain. I don't think Israel's going to give up its nukes. I don't think Britain, <laughs> France... Uh, the USA. No, oh, just the region? Yeah. I don't think Israel's going to give up its nuclear weapons anytime soon. So I think we'll be waiting a long time for that to happen. As, as I don't think any of the nuclear weapon states will give up their nuclear weapons. Uh, I have a question for you. Yes. So we haven't talked about Israel very much. Um, there's six countries negotiating with Iran. Yeah. Right? E3 plus 3, P5 plus 1, however yeah. you want it. Whatever you, want. Whatever you prefer. Right? Uh, but there's a seventh country that has no relationship with Iran whatsoever, but actually is a very important course player in all these negotiations. So do you think we can have a resolution to this nuclear crisis without some kind of Israeli-Iranian detente of some kind? So it's a very good question. Um, I mean, in theory, I always think it's possible. I mean, the, one, one of the things I make a big point of saying to people is because I'm always asked, you know, would Iran nuke Israel? You know, would it nuke Israel? And, you know, I have to be very careful because one never wants, you know, when I say no, it wouldn't, I'm not defending the Islamic Republic, which I am no fan of. But the, the, the simple fact is, is that Iran doesn't care about Israel geostrategically. It never has. It cares about Russia and the Arabs. That's, I mean, you know, look, during the Iran Iraq war, Israel and the Mullahs, they work together. So, in theory, detente is not impossible. But I would be very surprised if it happened with the current regime in power, you know. And Israel is, you're absolutely right, it is the big seventh player in all this, which is the pressure it exercises. And it just, it's one more egg-timer. You know, you have the egg-timer of Iranian capability, and you have the egg-timer of, uh, of Israeli nuclear, uh, of Israeli action mm-hmm. against the program. Mm-hmm. So I mean, this is a significant player. And I, but I do think that if, to answer your question, if we can come to some kind of deal, because any deal I think that can be made in the next six months is not going to resolve everything. Mm-hmm. It'll just be, it'll just keep things kicking over for another year or so. Iran agrees to ship out 
X many kilos of low-enriched uranium. Mm-hmm. It agrees to even more rigorous in space, some kind of package that will keep things ticking over for another two years. I don't think Iran's going to give up its nuclear program. I don't think Israel's going to be uh, going to have the detente with Iran in time too. But I do think Israel would be satisfied with delaying. This is what they want to do, the Israelis. You know, delay, delay, delay. And it's the same thing. We delay it for two years, then maybe it's someone else's problem. Yeah, you haven't really mentioned um, by possible bilateral talks. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. You haven't mentioned the really bilateral talks with yes. the US. Uh, do you think that could be a game changer for the P5 plus one? Well, I hope so. Um, I, I do hope so. Um, I think generally the, the, the country, that can, <coughs> the only country that can really resolve, resolve this is the US. I mean, we came close um, in October 2009 when obviously the US met uh, in Geneva with the Iranians, and Ahmadinejad was keen on the deal that um, that was put on the table, but then internal politics forced him to back down, and then he claimed he'd never, he'd never accepted it in the first place. So I just think anything that can put America in the room with Iran is a good thing. There's a fairly good indication that there are bilateral talks going on, yeah. but they're not, for very good reasons they're not public. I think that's quite wise that they're not public. Um, are you how exhausted? No, I'm fine. It's good to go. Okay, no problem. You better. Yeah. Why didn't the Brazil and Turkey deal work? They could have made it work. Yeah, but the thing was, it wasn't great on paper. Iran. I mean, look, I'm actually having to drag into the bowels of my memory for this. But it was something like the the um, amount of LEU, the stockpile, was something like not even half. It would take it, I mean, in terms of the enrichment rates they were at, it would only um, it would only set them back a matter of months, I think, and what they wanted in return was just too much. I mean, it wasn't a great deal, really, to be honest, as far as P5 plus was concerned. Exactly, tell them something to say at the state. They had about um, experience with sending their uh, low-enriched uranium to back. Oh, before the revolution? Yeah, yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. They did, but I mean, at the same time, this is what Ali Ashkar Sultanay told me at great length. You're right, but at the same time, this is sort of, you know, Russia has made guarantees that they'll do it, and they're allies with Russia. I mean, it's not the US. There have been many. This is a classic level, I think, of Iranians just stalling, you know, playing for time and, and being very cynical, I do think. You can say, yes, okay, but it's not the USA that's going to ship it, and you'll ship it, you'll ship it to Russia. Russia has bent over backwards. You know, the Iranians have been offered very many good deals, they just haven't really been interested in compromising for many, many years, because it's one more political card they have to play. Do you see just, yeah. just one thing? Sorry, I'll come back to you. Sir. Just a few more. Yeah, sir. Oh, uh, sir, I read somewhere that Iran probably doesn't really want a nuclear weapon. They want the capability. I was wondering if that's something that U.S. and Iran sort of, and Israel sort of compromise on, if Iran has the capability like Japan, but doesn't necessarily have the weapon. Yeah, I don't think they, they want that at all, especially not the Israelis. Because, I mean, this is what many people say. It's what I believe in the end. I don't think that Iran wants to make a bomb because I think in order to make the nuclear bomb, to actually possess one, it would become North Korea. I mean, it would be the pariah of everyone. It's not just the West we're talking about here. It's, you know, Russia, China, I mean, their allies. And also, look, all of the Middle East. We do say a lot of times it's the Western countries that don't want Iran to have a nuclear bomb. This isn't true. It, you know, all of the Middle East doesn't want Iran to have a nuclear bomb. It's large swathes of, you know, the non-nuclear, you know, the tiny little countries that have no chance of ever getting a nuclear bomb don't want another nuclear power. Um, but I've often thought that probably what Iran is trying to do is getting up to that capability. Because once you have the capability, you're essentially a nuclear weapon state. And I don't think that that would be, uh, I don't think they would allow that, the US, Britain, France, and certainly not Israel. Because then it's a nuclear state anyway. So no, I don't think that, that that would be a compromise. I think that's what the Iranians are trying to do. Yes, please. Just a last word I wanted to say that. Do you think you write another book by saying Iran nuclear states so what? <laughs> <laughs> Be a short book. But, yeah. but uh, I don't know. You know, with Iran you never know. You can always be sure there'll be something to write about. <laughs> yes, I think it's the last one. Okay, well, you, you know my impression is that the, the Iranians don't really want nuclear yeah. And they say it, but nobody believes that. Just like they didn't believe Saddam, that he didn't have any weapons of mass destruction. Because they didn't want to believe it. They wanted his oil industry. Yeah. So maybe Iranians should offer the West investment in the oil industry. And that would lift the sanctions. 
hey, I think that would be a great solution for everyone. I would take issue with the fact that they don't really want nuclear weapons. I mean, officially they say it, but they've also been caught out investigating well, nuclear weapons. Everybody's been caught out. People don't return stuff to take. All the missions right. It's like the wrong It's called sure. diplomacy. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so, so you can't hold Iran to a special standard? No, 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 but I'm, no, no I'm not. No, no, I'm certainly not. What I'm saying is, in, sort of, in this issue, um, I disagree that they... I mean, I think if you were to ask Iran if you want a nuclear weapon without any, you know, do you want one? I think they say yes, you know. Um, their insecurity, you know, their insecurity, I think, they perceive it to be necessary. But, um, you know, I mean, it could well be that they only just want to go up to the capability as well. I just do think that there are enough drivers to make it rational for Iran to get a nuclear bomb. They don't have a reason, they don't have an enemy for whom they need a nuclear weapon. Well, like Pakistan needed it for. Them. Well, they had, yeah, but they had them. They had, a, they had Iraq, who, 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 you know, for years. Okay. Yeah, but okay, but the, when in, in the beginning he had a, a very significant program. Turned out then that he sort of dismantled a lot of it. But no, Iran has had security, um, security. Um, not of that reason. Well, maybe not in India, Pakistan, but I think so. Whatever, you know, I think so. I think, least, yeah. I think you're dying to write a book on this. <laughs> I think I'm <laughs> right. I think you should. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you for that.